our teacher for this class, the Geyers, are out of Alaska this week. And so Scott asked if I would take, for the next couple weeks, if I would just take this class and guide it uh, the next couple weeks. So this week we are going to cover a topic called The Gift, and then next week we'll come back and talk about miracles and what that means in Scripture. The title of the class is Jesus and the Land of Israel. And really, uh, Scott's approach or his goal in the class is for us to take a chance to look at our culture and then put it right next to the culture of the first century and the land uh, of the first century and see what are... Uh, What are some of the words and phrases and concepts and cultural practices of people uh, in that time period that we might miss because in our own culture we're blinded by our own assumptions and our own terms and own meanings to things. So anyway, the point of the class is for us to take a chance to see if we can live in both worlds and in our culture look back and hear uh, scripture, the things that Jesus taught, and see things that he did, but see it through the eyes of people who saw it for the first time and hear it through the ears of people who heard it for the first time and then step back into our culture and be able to say, well, what does that mean today? What are the things that we share in common? And then how do we apply what we learn here today? So that's the whole point is to have a chance to look and for it to enrich our understanding of Scripture. So uh, we've talked about several things. This week we're going to talk about gifts. I thought today would be an appropriate day for that because this is the holiday season for the whole world, regardless of which perspective people take. Uh, The whole world pauses to talk about uh, uh, whatever uh, leads to peace and working together. And because of the holiday season, there is this exchanging of gifts. It's a common practice all over the world uh, during the holiday season. And I thought, well, let's, let's take a minute to see what did the word gift mean in Jesus' time when he walked the earth and in the first century when the, uh, when the New Testament was written. And even we'll turn back to the Old Testament. I'll, we'll see where this goes today. I reluctantly, I, normally I'll put together PowerPoint slides for the scripture so you can read along. Today, I had no idea which way this would go. And so I thought, let's just use the old-fashioned technology and open our Bible. And then if you have your app, you can have the app. But let's see where this goes. Trying to figure out what did the word gift mean in the ancient Near East? How does that enrich in the way we read certain passages? And then, and then let's bring that back to the day today and say, what, is, what does this word mean to us today? Here, let me just start with one passage, and we'll let this lead off our discussion. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. which is one of my favorite passages because in 10 verses, Paul summarizes the entire gospel. He starts off that passage by saying, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then he goes on to say, We were were dead. But look at how he turns this around in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Now listen to what he says next. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. There he says it again. 
in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, there's a third time, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. And then he defines what he means. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So there's just one example of how the word gift is going to work its way uh, into our discussion. But let's just start with looking at our culture today, and then we'll, we'll pivot uh, over to the first century and see what this word meant then. Um, when, you, when you think of the word gift, what are, in English, what are some other words that we use for the term gift, something that is given? Let's just brainstorm here. What are some other, there's a lot of words we use. A present, good. So something that is presented, that is put before someone else, present. What else? Stretch those thesaurus muscles. <laughs> Brainstorming is supposed to just kind of be off the top of your head. Right? So we have gift, we have present. Is that the only word you use? Great, an offering, yeah. So we'll do that today. We'll pass a tray around and people will give a gift, but it's called an offering. Good. Yeah, what else? Okay, you threw a big Christmas party. Everybody came to your house. It was a big celebration. At the end, at the door, you're giving out this gift to people. What do you call that? A a favor, yeah. So a favor is another word we use for gifts. Can you think of any others? A donation. Excellent. Yeah. So I take something that's mine, I donate it to you. We're just trying to warm up our brains, Tracy, here, with trying to come up with words for gift, this word gift. What are some other words we use? So here's what we've listed so far. We could either say, if I'm giving a gift, I could say gift. I could call it a present. I could call it a offering. I could call it a favor. I could call it a donation. Is there anything else? Excellent, yeah. A blessing, a good word, uh, which is where we get that term blessing. Sometimes that's considered a gift. And did you say the word grace at the end? Yeah. That's really interesting you'd say the word grace. Because you know what the word for gift in the first century was, the primary word? It's this word charis. And the word charis is not a religious word. It was used all the time uh, in religious settings and in business settings and in uh, relationship settings of all kinds and the word it ends up being translated in your New Testament as the word grace but every time you see that word grace in your New Testament from now on know that at least in the first century that was one of these many words for just a gift or a present it was just this kind of everyday word Congress is grace yeah. <clears throat> mm-hmm. good contribution ah yes yeah, now that is reaching back. Maybe I haven't used that a lot this week in my language, but yeah, the word charity was the word for a loving gift, an act of love. Yeah, exactly. 
All right, well, you get the point. There are a lot of words that we could use. And sometimes we just throw them out. We don't even know that's what we're talking about. But these all mean gift. Now, when you think of a gift, let's see if we can come up with some qualities of the perfect gift. So if a gift or an offering or a donation or a favor or a blessing or whatever, just whatever word you use, for it to be just right, for it to be the perfect gift, what are some qualities that it would have? Uh, it's free. <laughs> okay, so a gift to be perfect is free. Tailored to the recipient. Now, what do you mean by that? Ah, good. So not like what we typically do. I really liked it, so I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, I, I have thought about what is it that you really need? What is it that you want? Good. So it's tailored to the recipient at no cost. Oh, so a a gift where there is an expectation of return would be an imperfect gift or some way tainted. No, and I think you're exactly right. In our culture especially, a more perfect gift is one that is given freely. Uh, we didn't use the word lavish yet, did we? But can we add that? A lavish. So imagine a, 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 an exorbitant gift that is given it no, with no expectation of return. Is there an evil side of giving where there is an expectation of return? What do you call that when I give you something with the expectation of it Yeah, so they'll say a gift with strings attached is somehow tainted if there's strings attached. Uh, is there a sense in which that can become an evil? Have you ever heard of that taken to its extreme? What do we call that? What was that word? Somebody whispered it out loud. It's a bribe. Yeah, exactly. So it, would everybody agree a bribe is not a good thing? What is it that makes a bribe a bribe? I mean, it makes it bad. Ah, so you're expecting something they wouldn't willingly give back, or all right, there's something more that makes that evil or wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. And in most cases, a bribe, uh, if you look at this really across the world, where a bribe steps over the line to become evil, 
is when what is expected back is something that otherwise would not be done but is an injustice to someone else. In other words, I'm asking you to turn a blind eye to justice and favor me with something that's going to be oppressive to somebody else. That's the worst type of bribery. Uh, but there are places in the world where what looks an awful lot like a bribe to you is actually not a bribe, even though there is an expectation of return. Uh, any of you have been on mission trips before, probably been at the border crossing between one country and another, and we were coming back last year from Nicaragua into Honduras when we got stopped at the border, and they wanted to know why we had all these COVID tests. You know, they had COVID tests if you went to their capital city to get it done. Why do we have them in our bag? And so there was this huge, you know, debate about whether or not we should have to pay some tax to bring in, you know, the COVID test, which we needed for our team to get back to the U.S. You know why we had it. My, my point to tell this story is the missionary who had been there a long time, in the midst of this whole big argument with the officials there at the border, he pulls out a $20 bill, hands it to their official, and says, listen, let's just all go get ourselves some Cokes and sit down, and we'll, we'll let this sort itself out. And he handed him a $20 bill. And the guy took the $20 bill, put it in his pocket, and he goes, you know, it's not a big deal. You guys just go ahead. <laughs> Was that a bribe? Yeah. yeah. Was it a bribe? Was it? Yeah. My point in saying that is there are places where that gets really close. Is that a bribe? Is it not? But culturally in that setting, he had been there long enough to know he was doing something that was not a bribe. We'll talk about that maybe in just a minute. But let's just acknowledge that there are times where if he had pulled out money and said, I want you to let us through, but these people behind us do not, then that crosses the line. You've created an injustice for someone else, and you, you know, take that to its highest levels of government. And you can see where at the corporate level, uh, you know, at the highest levels of policymaking and uh, the enforcement of justice, bribes can be uh, just a terrible, uh, destructive part of culture. So that's the bad side of giving. We were talking about the perfect gift. The perfect gift would be lavish. It would not be a bribe. It would not be that expectation of return back. That's the way we tend to think of a gift. Anything else about a perfect gift? Oh, it has the it has the recipient's needs and end in mind. And we would all agree that's a good description of the perfect gift. Yeah, uh, some of that was true in the ancient world too. But here's one thing that was very different in the ancient world than today, and that is in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, and still true in much of the world, a gift if it is given, there is absolutely the expectation not just of return, of something you're going to give me of equal value. That part was there. But there was the expectation that we are establishing here and now a relationship. Any gift that was given of any amount was the either forming or the maintenance of a relationship. And let me give you an example of that in today's world, and then I want you to let, help me find examples of this in, in Scripture. An example of this that still happens today Again, in many parts of the world, if you go, gifts are exchanged. And it's not just a gift of saying, hey, thank you for inviting me to your house or your country. I brought you this you know, gift. It's not just a gift out of the goodness of my heart, a form of charity, donation. If, if gifts are given in these settings, it is saying I want to establish a relationship. Um, Laura and I got a chance to travel to West Africa here recently. And we were up in the northern part of West Af- uh, the West African country of Ghana in a town called Yindi. And there we got to work with a medical team, and we were in the hospital setting there. And the lead nurse of that hospital was a guy, they they all call him Kojo, because his African name is so hard to say. So we all called him Kojo. And we worked closely, side by side, with Kojo. 
And then we also had our son with us, our young son. He's seven years old. He went, and his job while we were working in the clinic was to go out and learn how to play real football, okay, <laughs> the, the type that doesn't stop every few minutes for a little prayer meeting. I mean, he, he actually continued to play, so they call soccer football over there. So he played with the kids. He got to know them. The kids would come up to him and practice their English. Good morning. How are you? And Martin would shake hands with them, and they would practice, you know, uh, their, their English together. Well, at the end of our time there, but the, the morning we were going to leave, Yendi, Kojo, came into our guest house, and he had a special African Ghanaian smock. It was just his size, and he presented it somewhat ceremoniously to our son and gave it to him. And there wasn't a lot said. It was just given to him. And we took pictures, and, you know, it was kind of a fun time, and we left. It was a gift that he gave to Martin, so touched that a boy would come to visit their village. Well, about uh, two weeks later, I got an email from Kojo. And that email, it's a little bit longer, but it basically says, hi, I am Kojo. I am the nurse you worked with. And then he says two things. I am the one who gave your son the clothing. And the next line says, I want your family and mine to be friends. And that was the end of the email. Well, what you see there, and you see this all over the world, is that in a lot of these settings, the giving of a gift absolutely has strings attached. And, and you have to be aware of that. Because if someone pulls, you know, they come out with a couple of chickens and a bag of fruit and hand it to you, what they're really saying is, I want to be friends. What did you bring in your suitcase for me, <laughs> you know, to share back? There's an equal exchange. And it's the forming, my point there is, it's the forming and the solidification of relationships. And that's what the giving of gifts means. And that's the way it was through most of what you read in your Old Testament and your New Testament. Now let's dive in quick and see if we can find a few examples of that. Can you think of some examples, Old Testament, New Testament, going through where there is the exchanging of gifts in order to form, solidify, or maintain a relationship? I see some some people nodding. Yeah, some come to mind. Just what comes to mind? We'll we'll flesh out the story. Abraham and Lot. So what's the exchange that happens there? Mm-hmm. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why that on that side of the Jordan that was called an allotment I'm joking that's my only joke for class this morning was he, he gave him the, so, the uh, so good so there's the exchanging there's the forming of relationship between uncle and nephew yeah what else oh a good one yes where they are giving uh, a tithe basically forming of relationship good can you think of others Right. So, yeah. So that, and that's an important point. When you go back and look at, it looks like what are people buying wives? You know, is there exchange going on there? But if you put it in a different context, you realize that that exchanging of gifts, that bride price, was a way of saying we are forming and solidifying a relationship between families. And here's how it happens: there is an exchange of a gift that is exorbitant, that is given with the person, the recipient in mind, but absolutely with the string attached that this 
relationship goes both ways. Okay. How's that? Can you think of a story there? Ah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great, yeah, that's a great example. So Jacob and Esau, and that's, if you remember, that was about 20 years after Jacob had totally cheated Esau out of the birthright. It won't take a lot of time to go into that story, but you remember Jacob is the one put on the camel hair, went into his dad who was blind by that point, and stole basically the blessing. He had already stole the birthright. Now he got the blessing. And it's 20 years later, and they both have their families, and they've both grown. And so Jacob now makes his way back to Esau. But do you remember how he presented the gift? What's that? Way ahead, yeah. Huge amounts of animals. You guys go first. Yeah, and so he sent the gift way ahead. And it's a beautiful story when you read that. And by the, the end of that story, of course, Jacob finally makes his way to Esau. And Esau says, who are all these people? And Jacob says, this is my wife. This is my children. This is how God has blessed me. And then Esau says, why did you bring this whole gift? That was unnecessary. That was probably what he was supposed to say. It was necessary because it was this solidification of a relationship. And at the end of that, Jacob goes to Esau and says, please receive this if you have found favor with me. And he asks specifically for in this word, I think you'll find it in most of your translations, he asked for favor. That's the Hebrew word hen, and that's the word that the Greeks would take and turn into the word charis, which we already said is the word grace. Jacob says, will you give me grace, a gift, in exchange for my gift? So they were exchanging favors, if you will, they, uh, uh, for recognizing what each other needed. That's a great example. Can you think of others? Anybody else who exchanged gifts or brought gifts in order to form a relationship? Hey, the wise men. Right. How many were there? I just asked that because Jerry's going to look at me. Ah, we, <laughs> we don't know. Yeah, so the wise men. Matthew, it's a, a wonderful story where Jesus is born. Now, it, it may not have happened at the time of his birth because the, when you look at the timelines, this may have been sometime within the first two years after Jesus was born. You have these wise men who were called, I guess, Greek, it's Magi, who were from the east. Do you know where the Magi came from? That's a fascinating story when you realize they brought these gifts. And you remember the gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh brought there, left before Jesus. The, uh, the Magi were astrologers, magicians, sometimes translated wise men from the east. They were actually from Persia. And if you dial the clock back 500 more years you have the time when Israel was taken captive and taken over to Babylon. You remember a part of one of those young men that went over there was Daniel. And Daniel, under the Babylonian king at that time, Nebuchadnezzar, was advanced, along with the others, to be a high official in that, uh, you know, in Nebuchadnezzar's court. I wanted to say he was one of his commissioners, but I don't know. <laughs> they didn't really have it set up quite that way. But you, you remember the story. And Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he turned to all of his wise men. These aren't the exact same wise men that came to Jesus, but it's their, you might say, their ancestors. Uh, And he turned to the wise men and said, I had this crazy dream. 
explain it to me. And they said, okay, tell us your dream and we'll give you the interpretation. He goes, oh, I know how this works. You tell me what I dreamed and then I know you'll be able to tell me the interpretation. And they said, oh, king, there is no man on earth who can do that. And the king said, very well, you're all fake. You're all dead. And he was going to kill them all and their families. Well, Daniel was one of the (laughs) wise men. And, of course, he prayed. God revealed to him the dream. And he's the one who went back to Nebuchadnezzar and said, "Uh, oh, king, you're right. There's no man on earth who can do what the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and dreams. And so he tells him the interpretation of the dream. And you might remember the dream. Was that dream of the statue, you know, with the gold head? What was it? Silver chest, the bronze, all the way down to iron and the legs. And that represented each of the coming kingdoms. And so you had the Babylonian kingdom, that was the head, and that would be followed by the Medes and the Persians. That would be followed by the Greek empire. And then the final feat would be the Roman empire. And during the Roman empire, in the dream, there is this mountain, this rock that falls from the sky and crushes the entire idol and then itself grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. And that represented the kingdom that would have no end. And Daniel gives that interpretation of the dream. Well, you realize that after that, Nebuchadnezzar says, that was exactly what I dreamed. Uh, You know, Daniel gets all my gifts. Daniel ends up saying, keep your gifts. There is this exchange of gifts there where Nebuchadnezzar wants to give gifts. And Daniel says, keep your gifts. Uh, You know, they're for you, but this is what's going to happen. And that saved the necks of all the wise men. Well, don't you know that because it saved their necks, that story probably got retold. I'm just guessing. Now, this part's a little bit of speculation, but I'm pretty sure that in the lore of the wise men, year after year, generation after generation, that story, that dream would be passed on, not just in the Hebrew scriptures, but there's a version of that that had to have permeated through the ranks of wise men and the people. And then when the Medes and Persians came and they had their version of wise men or astrologers, they would pick up that story and hear that one day there would be this king, and it would be in the midst of this final kingdom, the mix of iron and clay, and they watched the skies, and it was those magi who saw the star, saw its interpretation, they make their way over. The point is this, when they came to bring gifts to Jesus, this was not a first Christmas exchanging of a few token gifts. They came as this huge horde. We don't know exactly what all they brought with them, but this was not just a little bit of gold, a little frankincense, a little myrrh, a nice little you know, package that they got at the local department store, you know, perfume department. This, these are huge amounts, so much so that it says that Herod was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him because of the entourage that, you know, that came. And then they shared these gifts with Jesus. Now, in Matthew, the reason that shared, this got off into its own sermon, didn't it? Well, here's the point. The reason they shared that with him was to say, this is a king. That's the end of the story. This is the rock that has just hit. And his kingdom is going to fill the whole earth. And they recognized it. Now, the reason Matthew puts that event in there for you to read is so that you recognize this kid who was just born in this manger, in this humble setting, this this is him. This is God's gift to the world. This is the king. That's his point, is this is the king who will take over all kingdoms. And the one people who recognize that are the people who all these hundreds of years have carried that story. And so they bring these gifts. Now, the point for today's lesson is, why did they bring gifts? It was to establish a relationship 
with this king who was going to be king of the whole world. This was a way of saying, this goes both ways. <laughs> we recognize, remember, Persia at that time was being threatened by the Roman Empire moving their direction. And so they were, it was their way of saying, we want to have a relationship with you. Other lavish gifts. Another story just popped in my head. Do you remember uh, Queen of Sheba visiting Solomon? Talk about a lavish gift. Yeah, she shows up from probably northern Africa somewhere, comes in because she heard about this guy Solomon, the king, and she exchanged gifts. And there we're told that she brought something like four and a half tons of gold on all these camels with this huge entourage to give to Solomon. And it's funny if you read that, uh, that story there where it says uh, she, she told Solomon everything that was on her mind. This <laughs> is kind of a funny line. She mentioned everything that was on her mind. And he not only listened, he answered all of her questions. And she was very impressed. And she gives him these incredible, these incredible gifts. But if you, if, you, if you stop reading there, you've stopped too soon. Because we, you see right after that is Solomon, King Solomon, then gives her gifts back. And the writer there, it's, it's recorded both in First Kings and in, uh, I think, Second Chronicles. But in uh, both places it says that Solomon did not give back to her the gifts she gave to him. It's not a re-gifting. <laughs> it, it, it wants to specify that he gave her gifts out of that which she did not give to him. <laughs> so some from his kingdom. My point is, you see these two people. That's an exchange. It's a, it's a relationship. So if you understand that, then there are, there are certain passages that will, will start to have a deeper meaning. Let me give you an example of those. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Now, in Matthew 5, you're, you're hearing a recording of the Sermon on the Mount, probably a Cliff Notes version of it. These are just snippets, somebody taking notes, and they give you a few of the lines from the Sermon on the Mount. And in chapter 5, there are a couple of comments made about gifts. I'll just brush or gloss briefly over when Jesus says, if you come to offer your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. That word is the word offering. Leave your offering at the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. So you hear in that the idea, the whole point of the gift is not just to get something back from God. It's about this reconciliation, and Jesus brings that in. But it's much clearer, I think. Um, look at verse 38. So Matthew five thirty-eight. Jesus comments on what they, the culture in which they grew up. This is the air that they breathe. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So this was the form of justice. If I do something to you, then I can expect that you're going to give something that's going to repay uh, whatever it is that you've taken, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus says, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you or who asks from you, and do not refuse the one who wants to borrow from you. So you see where Jesus is commenting here on what would have been just part of their cultural experience. You heard that it was said that if someone wants to sue you, and let's assume legitimately because they've been wronged, then, hey, the, the law is eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. We won't get into this now, but that was actually protective. Because if somebody's offended you, 
uh, or harmed you in some way, the natural human reaction is to visit that back. And you know, you take one of my eyes, I'm going to take both of yours. You know, and so we escalate it, and then it escalates up. And so this was a protective law that said, no, there's a line. Things are even once there is uh, equality parity between the person who's been wronged and the person who is repaying for that wrong. But Jesus takes it up a notch. And he says, no, if someone wants to sue you and take the shirt off your back, what are you supposed to do? Yeah, if, if whatever the lawsuit is, it's kind of a strange one, but if the end of the lawsuit was returning a shirt, <laughs> when you give the shirt back, you're now even. The, the case is settled. But what happens if, in addition to the shirt, in this culture, in addition to the shirt, if you take off your coat and give it to them, what have you just done? You have just created a relationship in which there's an expectation of return. And you'll see this throughout the way Jesus says, how do you handle your enemies? You turn them into friends. Because if I just give you their shirt, oh, we're even. But if I give you my coat, we are now friends, or at least that's from my side what I'm asking. Do you see that now? That's what Jesus is pointing to, and it doesn't end there. Because the expectation, look at verse 43 right after that. He said, you also heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now this was the other part about gift giving in the ancient Near East in the first century, and that was there was meant to be a congruity, the scholars call it a congruity in the giving, where you know, you have the queen of Sheba and a king. They're kind of equals doing this exchange. The, the, the magi bring gifts to Jesus because they recognize his deity. The gift is being given in recognition of the merit or the worth of the recipient. And that was a huge part of giving in the first century. And you think about what in the first century gave a person worth or merit worthy of receiving a gift. And in, in the mind of a Jewish person, first and foremost is this is a person who follows the Torah. They follow the law. And because they follow it so well, they are worthy of, let's say, a gift or my favor or my offering or donation. If a person was wealthy, if they were a successful business person, they would be worthy of the gift. If they were a ruler of a certain area, they'd be worthy of a gift. If they were of a certain gender, they would be worthy of a gift more than somebody of another gender. There were all these distinctions. Jews more than Greeks, males more than females, uh, free persons were merited a gift more than slaves. But Jesus starts to change that. And when he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor. Everybody knew that. Hate your enemy. Who do you, who do you bond with? Who do you share with? Who do you give gifts to to form the relationship? It's with your neighbor. But your enemy, that's a different story. We're not saying form relationships with them. But Jesus says, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And here's your hint that God's form of giving is a step above anything you see in human relationships. You, as those who inherit as children the gifts of God, you are to be like them. For he, talking about God, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? <laughs> That's kind of a funny one. 
even the IRS knows how to throw Christmas parties and give gifts to each other, you know. But if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the Gentiles do that? You, therefore, must be, and they use this word, perfect. The perfect gift. It's the word teleos. It means a gift reaching its fullest meaning and serving its fullest purpose. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's the line that says our giving now is to imitate, not the culture around us, is to imitate a different form of giving. And that was true in the first century as it, was, as it is for today. We are to imitate the way that God gives. And then Jesus goes on to say, Beware, though, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For if you do, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, now here in that line, what you're doing, the give is, is not just charity. This is not philanthropy. This is the forming of a relationship. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpets before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Well, do you, do you see what Jesus is doing? In terms of the giving of gifts... Your giving is to be like God's. Well, what's characteristic about the way God gives? Did you catch that in the passage? What's characteristic about the way God offers gifts in order to form this relationship? Maybe we just go back to our definition. Is it lavish? Does it have the recipient's needs in mind? And the third question, are there strings attached? And this is a little bit of a trick question. It's what Danny was saying earlier. We don't want to anthropomorphize. I think that was the word you used, this. What you're saying is there's something about the way God gives. There's this important distinction I wonder if you can catch that. God's way of giving is lavish. It has the in-person in mind. But is it conditional? And that's a little bit of a trick question. I have to give credit to one of the Bible scholars, a guy named John Barclay. He's a professor of New Testament over in Durham, uh, England. And they just sound smart over there you know, when they <laughs> give lecture. But he, he actually wrote a whole book called The Gift. But he brings out this point that's really powerful, and that is that God's gifts are unconditioned, but they are not unconditional. And what that means is that we see this change in what Jesus teaches in how you recognize the merit or the value of the person who is the recipient. No longer are you allowed to define the merit or the worth of a person based on their age, on their gender, on their socioeconomic status, on their value in a community, on whether or not they follow the Torah or they're a Gentile. You're no longer allowed to do that. Here there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. That's the lesson that Jesus is bringing in here. And that's the way God gives. It is unconditioned. Now let me show you the example of that. This is in Romans chapter 5. 
if you wanted to read the exact uh, quote, but this is in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps a good person one would possibly dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the gift that God gives, and then the verse we started with in Ephesians where it says, it is by grace you have been saved. Do you remember how he used grace three times? And now you know why he used that word grace. It's the word gift. It's by this gift of God that you have been saved. It's not of yourselves. It's this gift of God so that no one can boast. And that gift is unconditioned. It is not based on your merit or Worth before God by any definition of human standards. But it's important not then to think that it is unconditional. It is absolutely conditional. But again, in this first century understanding that when a gift is given, it is the establishment of a relationship in which God comes to you and gives you this gift. And then you can expect an email two weeks later saying, I give you this gift. I want to be your friend. It's much deeper than that. I want you to be my daughter. I want you to be my son. You are my heir. <laughs> you know. Do you see how God's gift is that way? Let's conclude class by uh, flipping over in our taste test of what gift means to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, much too long for us to uh, read all the way through But this section is where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth because he wants to prepare them to give a gift to the Jews in Jerusalem. He's asking Gentiles to pull together their resources to take a gift to Jerusalem. And he's teaching them how to do that. And he talks repeatedly in there about how he's not asking them to be poor so Jerusalem can be rich. He says he wants there to be parity. There needs to be kind of this this fairness. And this is where he talks deeply about giving. And over and over again, he uses words for giving, some of the words we came up with in, uh, at the first of the class. But let me just you, uh, read to you the conclusion of kind of 8 and 9. Paul says in 9, verse 6, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency, all you need in all things, at all times you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So he who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increasing the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving that's a neat word. We'll talk about that later, but some other time. A giving of thanks to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from, and here's the point for today, your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them 
and for the others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing, here's this word, grace, charis, or gift of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. My point here, or what I was hoping that we would lead to, is a fuller, enriched understanding of what it means as followers of Christ to give. It's not just something that we do because God said do it and it's a good habit or a good practice. It is ingrained in what it means to be a child of God, is to imitate the way God gives, absolutely to form relationships with no regard to the normal definitions of worth in our culture. But instead, as Paul says here, it is a living out of the very good news, the very gospel of God giving his inexpressible gift, the Christ gift, to the world. And we, in turn, take our step right behind him and are extenders of that same gift and grace to the world. So I hope that enriches your uh, your understanding. Every time now you run into the word grace, gift, favor, offering, donation, anywhere in scripture, you'll now uh, have a richer understanding. Well, let's prepare now for our Uh, time of worship together. Uh, Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you bless the reading of your word, and that as we transition now to turn back to you, we ask that you receive our honor, our praise, our adoration for your inexpressible gift. In Jesus' name, amen.